Well, hey, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark 14. So whether you've got your scripture journal um, or a physical copy or your phone, um, turn with me to Mark 14. And as you're turning there, um, I don't know about you guys, but Thanksgiving week is one of my favorite weeks of the year. Um, one, I think it's a, it's a slower week because usually around Christmas, my family's traveling a good bit. And so, but there are some other reasons. One is I just love some good food. Anybody like, I, hey, come on, I see a hand over there. Yes, yes, T, thank you. Um, man, I, I can enjoy eating some good food, but my one responsibility is to make sure the turkey gets prepared the right way. Um, you know, just make sure it doesn't get burnt, you know, and, and this year I didn't even brine my turkey. I may never brine another turkey. It tasted fine. And so I don't know any of you, they're like, hey, I'm brining it. I may not, you know, just fool with that. But hey, Zoe threw me a curveball this year. I'm, you know, uh, taking the turkey out of the package. And, you know, um, as you're washing it off, you pull out the neck and then the giblet bag, you know, where you've got like, um, what's in that thing? You've got the heart, the liver, the gizzard. I mean, I don't know what you guys do with that. We just toss that in the trash usually. But, some, you know, some of you may do some gravy with that. Yes, Grace, I see Grace nodding over here. This year, Zoe was like, hey, Dad, can you save the neck for me? So I'm like, sure. So we actually cooked the neck this year, and, and Zoe had neck for um, Thanksgiving. You can go find her and ask her <laughs> how it tasted. Um, but I love me some food. Hey, I also, on Thursday... I got to play some flag football um, with my boys, um, Lionel and Adam. I don't know if they popped in here yet. Um, and, man, I just, that just takes me back to my glory days um, and trying to, um, you know, relive some of that. Hey, go ask Emmett. Um, he did get picked off by his dad. I did run it back for a touchdown, and he did not chase me down. So um, it was a good day. I did pop some ibuprofen after that, and I am still feeling a little sore. Um, but also, I mean, Thanksgiving kicks off the Christmas season. In our household, that's already been kicked off a few months ago. Thank you to Ava. I love you, Ava. But like we could celebrate Christmas year round. Um, but, uh, you know, from trees to music. But unique in, in our family. Hey, has anybody caught like their favorite Christmas movie yet? Anybody? No, okay. Maybe that's on the to-do list for December. Um, but, you know, as, as we also start thinking about maybe presents, I don't know what you guys do for presents in your family. No, I've got five kids. Um, and so one of the things that we work out with our kids is instead of them trying to buy like a gift for every sibling, we, um, we have them draw names and then keep it a secret who they're buying a gift for. Now, they've never let Lee and I do that because I'd love to just draw one of their names, but they make us buy presents for all of the kids. Um, but the goal is for them to keep who they have a secret, and what they bought a secret. And can you imagine, you guys, some of you can know my kids. Like, this is almost impossible. This year, I think we made it 30 seconds before we had to do a redraw um, because somebody had already leaked out who they had. But after the redraw, I think so far, we're safe. Nobody knows who they have. Oh, Ava's stink. Ava's like, no, the secret's already out. Um, but hey, here's the deal. When we come to the Gospel of Mark, We've seen and heard about the messianic secret. Jesus has been doing these miracles. And he's, it says he strictly charged them to tell no one about who he is and what he's done. We see, we, we've seen this repeated 
over and over in Mark. You could go look at Mark 144, Mark 312, Mark 543, Mark 8, 29, and 30. And there, there are two primary reasons Jesus has done this. The first one is because as soon as Jesus goes public about his true identity, execution is inevitable. Like the cross is going to be immediate, and Jesus has still had other things that the Father has had him to do. But second, Jesus and his true identity can't be fully understood apart from suffering and the cross. When we come to the text today, there will be no more secrets in the gospel of Mark. The time has come. And so as we look in Mark 14, last week, we saw where Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And um, and then Jesus is seized, he's arrested, and he's let off. That's where we pick up today in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to start reading beginning in verse 53. Now the Word of God says this, and it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest... And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, 
before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I want to just make a few initial observations here about the text before we jump in here. And looking back at verse 53, I want you to see this. Um, you know, as we, as we reflect on this section here, this is roughly happening between midnight and 6 a.m. Just think about that for a second. Midnight and 6 a.m. This is happening overnight, Thursday night, into early Friday morning. And what we see here is that there are three um, important people besides Jesus or, or groups of people that play a role in this story. The first one, it says here in verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest. Now, if we were to go read in the Gospel of John, John tells us that they first took him to Annas, who was the former high priest, and then after Annas, he goes to Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas and the current high priest. So we're going to see the high priest who plays a role here in this trial. But then we see here, it lists a number of other people. It says all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together. Later on, it calls them the Sanhedrin, the council. These were the religious leaders of the day. Now, here's an important thing to note. Since it was happening midnight to 6 a.m., this isn't an official trial. It's more like a hearing. Um, because the Jewish leadership did not possess the actual legal authority to execute Jesus. They could go make a recommendation, but they could not actually carry that out because they were under Roman rule. But this is why later on in a few weeks, we're going to preach and you're going to see how he comes. He's taken to Pilate, who is the Roman governor so we have the high priest, we have the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, and then we have this note. Who else is in this scene? It says, verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance. So you have this trial scene with Jesus, and then you have Peter lurking in the background. And so here's an important thing that I want you to see. It's not just that Jesus is on trial here. The way this is presented, Peter is also on trial. And Mark's wanting us to wrestle with this. Who is gonna be faithful under persecution? You've got Jesus who's gonna face persecution and you have Peter who is gonna face persecution. But already the text here noting the distance by which Peter is to Jesus, it says he followed at a distance. It's already foreshadowing the distance that Peter is separating himself from Jesus. And so here's what Mark's wanting us to do today. Mark's inviting us into two courtrooms. And he's begging a response from you. As Jesus is on trial, he's confronting the reader and you've got to wrestle with this question. Who is Jesus and what will you do with him? And then he's going to bring you into the courtroom of Peter. And he's going to ask you this. Are you, like Peter, going to follow safe observation or will you be faithful with costly 
discipleship. Let's jump into trial number one here. Trial number one, who is Jesus and what will you do with him? Look back in the text here with me. Verse 55 clarifies what the religious leaders were really after here with Jesus. It says, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Their aim was that Jesus would be killed, but they, they needed more than just a religious indictment. They needed a political indictment because a religious indictment, it's not gonna matter to the Romans. They needed to present something to the Romans that would make them act in their own self interest. This is why the one example that's mentioned later with the false testimony is about the temple. The temple would raise the eyebrows of the Romans. If Jesus is going to destroy this temple, that would cause an uproar. But more than that, if Jesus is claiming to come in and be another king, I guarantee you Caesar is going to listen to those potential um, uh, comments. And so, um, you know, that's what's going on here. And I think there's three specific things that this text teaches us about Jesus that I want us to draw our attention to. And the first one is this, is it draws our attention to his innocence. Look back at the text here. Verse 55. They're seeking testimony, but how does that verse end? But they found none. As you read through this, it is clear that Jesus is being executed unjustly. He's innocent. He is not the one that is at fault. It mentions later on in verse 56, it says, there were many, note that word many, they were trying to pile up testimony against testimony against Jesus. There were many, but their testimony didn't agree. Go read Jewish law. If they couldn't even agree on their testimonies, there's no way he could be condemned to death. And so they're bringing these testimonies against Jesus. And the one specific one that Mark mentions here is the one against the temple, verse 57. It says, they stood up and bore false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple. Did Jesus ever say that? He did not say that he's gonna destroy this temple. Look at the text here. In John 2, Jesus says this, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. We've seen through Mark, Jesus definitely predicted the destruction of the temple, but he didn't say, I'm gonna destroy this temple. Again, they were trying to twist words to condemn Jesus, but this would have been a serious charge. I mean, the temple was the center of, of Jewish worship. But they could not even agree about this. You see that in 59. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. First, we see his innocence. The second, I want you to see his silence. Look here at verse 60. 
It says, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? I mean, imagine being Jesus. He's sitting on trial here, this informal hearing, and just accusations are being brought at him. And what's he doing? It says this, verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus was not going to give them potential words to exploit against him and use as ammunition against him. So he sits there quietly. But I think there's another reason he does this. There's no way to read this without hearing the echoes of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, listen to these words. It says this. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As Jesus remained silent, this silence points to his innocence. He just lets them keep talking and rattling off their false testimonies. And the more and more it shows he's innocent and the more that they're trying to do something that is unjust. And so what happens? We move from his innocence to his silence to now the high priest takes on the role of prosecutor. Jesus, do you not have anything to say about this? All along knowing that they're contradicting themselves And so we move to verse 61, and it says, But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Now, this word Christ here is bringing out the the Hebrew, this anointed one, this promised one. Are you the one that has been promised? And then this Son of the blessed is another way of saying, Are you God's Son? Are you the promised one? Are you God's Son? And now Jesus answers, and he says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now I want to hit pause here for a second. Does anybody remember how the gospel of Mark began? Go flip back to the very first verse in the gospel of Mark. Go to Mark 1.1. This is where Mark unpacks his purpose statement. This is what he says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have the high priest. Mark's presenting this high priest now saying, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? Mark's now drawing his book to an end. And interestingly, it's not his disciples here who are answering this. It's the high priest who's now vocalizing this and asking this with his words. And we see Jesus' response. And Jesus' response here takes two very key Old Testament passages and throws them together. And there's echoes here of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. Let's look at this first one. Look at Psalm 110. We've already seen it a chapter earlier. Jesus was teaching in the temple. 
And he goes to Psalm 110, which says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus, he's, Jesus is saying, hey, how does Jesus call, how does David call him his son and yet his Lord? Now, you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying, that Lord is me. Because look at, look at what Jesus says in Mark 14, 60, 61 there. He says, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He's saying, that one, that Lord who's seated at the right hand, that is me. And then we see Daniel 7, another famous Old Testament promise and prophecy about the coming promised one, which says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming to be the son of man in Daniel 7 and the Lord of Psalm 1101. He is the one that is going to sit at the right hand of God. He is claiming to have an authority that only God can have. Ironically, while he's sitting on trial, he's claiming to be the one who's going to be the final judge. He's the one coming on clouds that everyone will give an account to. And the response of the high priest makes this clear that Jesus was really claiming to be God. Because what does the high priest do here in Mark 14? Looking on down, it says, um, verse 63, the high priest tore his garments. What further witnesses do we need? Do you see the irony? The high priest lined up witness after witness against Jesus. And none of them could tell the truth. Do you know the witness who actually condemns Jesus to death? It's Jesus. He's the one that witnesses and tells the truth about who he is and actually ends up with his own execution. And it says the high priest tore his garments. You can go look at Numbers 14, verse 6, and go look at 2 Samuel 1, 11. Blasphemy, the charge of blasphemy is why he's doing this. It was reserved for those who ascribed God's honor to themselves or equated themselves equal with God. If you did that, that was blasphemy and he would have ripped and tore his garments. The high priest understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And so what do they do? Not only does he rip his garments, it says they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Why was Jesus sentenced to death? You need to answer this question. And here's an this option was not given to us. Jesus was not killed because he was guilty. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was killed 
because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the promised one. And so he either is or he isn't. And the irony through this whole trial is that the Sanhedrin is really the one who's guilty. We didn't even press in here, but one commentator says this, every, nearly every detail of Jesus' trial violates the rules for capital cases prescribed in the Mishnah. They're the, this is midnight to 6 a.m. and Jesus is on trial. This was not a fair trial. They were, they were expediently trying to move him to the cross because the Sabbath was coming and, and they wanted to get this thing done. They're the ones that are guilty, not Jesus. The Sanhedrin is the one who provides false witnesses and Jesus is the one who actually tells the truth. The Sanhedrin think they're putting Jesus on trial and Jesus is the one who was saying they're the ones on trial and he is gonna be their judge. The Sanhedrin, they're the ones mocking Jesus and saying prophesy, and yet every single one of Jesus' prophecies have come true. The high priest is the one who blasphemes, not Jesus, because he truly is the son 